Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast, hosted by Alison Humphreys. The Recruitment Leadership Podcast is here to help those in the recruitment industry gain awareness and understanding on the hot topics faced by those in the business of hiring people. In each episode, Alison Humphreys is joined by a fellow expert to offer professional knowledge, insight and advice on the biggest subjects affecting recruitment businesses. It's the podcast to listen to for recruitment business frontrunners seeking expert information from industry-leading advisors. Welcome to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Hi, thank you for joining us on the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. In this, our series about the future. I am very pleased today to be joined by Jeff Wild. Jeff is a best-selling author and an entrepreneur in his own right. So Jeff has built up and successfully sold businesses and at the moment particularly interested in talking to him about his Amazon bestseller book, The End of Jobs. Now for everyone in recruitment, this is a must listen because this will affect you in a multitude of ways. It will affect you as a business owner. It will affect you as someone who earns a living and there is a special piece of, you know, piece of information there that will affect recruiters and we all ought to be aware of. So, Jeff, welcome aboard. Could we just start by you telling us about your experience of growing businesses before you started Work Market? That is true. That is true. And Alison, first off, thank you for having me. That was a wonderful intro because you're so right. Like when you think about the recruiting industry, it has many more impacts in terms of the future of work that practitioners there need to think about because it not only affects how they're going to do their job, which is something that everybody needs to think about in the future of work, but it's affecting their customer bases and where they want to go after talent pools, where they want to go after clients that are growing and, and jobs and functions that are growing. Because whether it's robotic process automation, whether it's job losses, whether it's on demand or gig economy, the movements within their client bases, recruiters being aware of them and understanding how to best adjust their practices from a process standpoint, adjust their practices from a sales standpoint, super important. So back to your question on work market. So work market is enterprise software that enables companies to organize, manage, and pay their freelance workforce. That was what we set out to build. We raised about 70 million in venture capital from SoftBank, Union Square Ventures, and a host of others. And we built the company up to hundreds of millions in gross market value, right? The payroll that we were supporting in the freelance marketplace, thousands of companies using the platform. And we sold it three years ago to ADP, the world's largest human capital management software company. And ADP has a vision of total talent management, where companies manage all of their labor resources in one system. And work market is a very important component of that because we help companies manage their entire freelance workforce. Okay. So you've had that significant success before you turned your attentions to writing this book. Tell me, what made you write The End of Jobs? What were the key messages that you felt the world needed to hear? Ah, uh, great question. I mean, what does the world really need to hear from any author? <laughs> I mean, I will tell you this. I actually started writing the book well before we were purchased by ADP. I've been researching and writing this book for eight years. You know, I used to say seven years, but now another year has gone by. And so what initially started me writing this book, Allison, was frustration. 
is frustration with people that are talking about the future of work that aren't basing their predictions on evidence. And Uh there is ample evidence in the world of work. And I think about the evidence as three distinct bodies. One is the history of work. How did companies, workers, and society come together over multiple technology changes to produce the goods and services we need? The second is is data, just the data trends and patterns throughout history, today in the world of work. And the third is how companies actually engage workers, which your audience knows all too well. Mm -hmm. People outside of our world tend to kind of think labor resource planning meetings go like this. All right, so what should we do with our employees? Well, we should screw them and char and you know hire the cheapest workers anywhere we can find. Okay, great, meeting adjourned. And that's not how actual labor resource planning meetings go, ever. And so when you think about the history of work, the data, and how companies actually engage workers and deploy capital, you can start to put together a thoughtful view of the future of work, not just some fear-mongering prediction. Oh, all the world's going to go on demand. Oh, all the jobs are going to be gone because of robots and AI. Predictions like that annoy the heck out of me and frustrate me. And I think they're dangerous and irresponsible because they lead people, families, communities, companies to make decisions that are sometimes incorrect. Right. Now, so what you're saying is the world of work will change, but not in the way that a lot of people assume. And um, it's interesting that uh, even, you know, in the last couple of decades in the recruitment industry, I've seen a similar thing where, for example, when when job boards came in on the Internet, mm-hmm. pretty much, you know, there was this huge voice, at least in the in the Anglophone world, saying, that's it, that's the end of the That's recruitment. it. You know, end of it. Or pack up and go home. It's a bit like saying, CVs exist, therefore, why does anyone need recruiters? <laughs> it's, sure. You know, it, lots of people were literally writing epitaphs for the recruitment industry and Nothing like that has actually happened that way. But I think there is a, a, a reasonable question to put back to you, and that is how much of your future predictions can you really use historical evidence? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'd like to focus in on that because okay. some people would say, look, you know, everything you used to know is not relevant anymore. Look, the, there are a few things that come to mind, Alison. One is one of my favorite lessons from business school which is the five most dangerous words in business are this time it is different. That is one of the few things I actually remember from Harvard Business School. I probably should remember more. But the thing is, look, there are always substantive reasons while things might be slightly different. No question. You know, looking at the textile industry in England in the late 1700s, what applicability should that or could that have to recruiting in the 2020s. I will tell you some, there is some applicability. And when we see data pen trends and patterns, when we see behavioral patterns of companies, of workers that have persisted over 200 years, my challenge would be, why would you think it would be different this time? Mm-hmm. Now, look, there are a lot of things that we need to think about when we think about a specific industry, a specific job function and how technology and other forces might impact it. And the point of the book is not to say, oh, well, it happened this way in the past, therefore it's gonna happen in the future. It is to use our critical thinking skills to say, well, there are some historic trends and patterns that apply and there are some that clearly don't. 
there are some data trends and patterns that are super important for this specific industry, for the specific job function, some that are not. And the way companies engage workers, super relevant in some areas, maybe not so much in others. And so I wouldn't pretend in any, 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 any prediction on the future of work that we can paint some sort of broad brush and say, oh, well, it happened this time before, it's going to happen this way. It is, let's look at all that evidence. Let's look at the data and let's really think about it as opposed to job boards exist, therefore recruiters go. ATMs exist, therefore tellers go. You know, automated trucks are coming, therefore there'll be no more trucking jobs in the future. None of those are accurate statements. Two of them we have very clear data on and we see how things played out. The Uh truckers, we can go dive into truckers if you want, but there is this general feeling with that same simplistic conclusion. New tech exists, therefore jobs go. That is being applied today. And truckers is just my favorite example where everyone thinks, oh, automated vehicles are coming, therefore no trucking jobs. No, 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 and no. Like maybe they're coming, maybe jobs will be impacted, but the story of trucking in the United States right now is that there's a huge shortage of tens of thousands of people and jobs needed in the trucking industry. Sure, here too. Okay, so thank you. So for our viewers and listeners now, can you walk us through what you believe the evidence is actually telling us about the future of work then? Well, I think we can first look at our historical evidence and tie that into data a little bit. So I'll start on that journey. We see basically three phases in these different industrial revolutions. An industrial revolution is when a new technology comes on stream into mass adoption phase Mm -hmm. and so fundamentally alters the supply and the demand balance between companies and workers. And something your audience knows very well, right? That supply and demand balance is super important. Because if you're working on a placing a job where there's a massive supply and demand imbalance and there are no workers, your client magically thinks they hire you, you're going to be able to find them. A supply and demand imbalance is a supply and demand imbalance. They can be able to magically find it. The education system needs to catch up. So supply and demand and understanding its patterns throughout history is very powerful. Those industrial revolutions massively exacerbate the supply and demand balance because companies need fewer workers because of the new tech. So when we see that, we see three phases. We see the freak out phase. And the freak out phase is, oh my God, this new tech exists, all the jobs are gonna go. And I would argue that we're actually past the freak out phase in this industrial revolution, which many people are calling the fourth industrial revolution, robots and AI. Then we move into the economic and societal dislocation phase. And a lot of people, when they look at history, kind of gloss over this phase. They're like, oh, people say they're gonna be You know, all the jobs are going to go, but then there ended up being more jobs, so everything's fine. And that is true. More jobs is our third phase. They skip over the second phase, which is economic and social dislocation as jobs are lost. And society does a terrible job of retraining people moving Mm -hmm. to the jobs that are growing. And that leads to nationalism and populism and a host of things that we are in the midst of now. And this is a very, very dangerous phase for society. But then comes that third phase. And that third phase is the almost uninterrupted data trends of more jobs being created, humans working fewer hours in order to achieve an ever higher standard of living. Those data trends are almost uninterrupted in the last 200 years of human history, the 200 years in which we had this context of a job. And so someone presented me the evidence as to why we think those data trends that have persisted for 200 years are going to be interrupted and changed. And I'd love to have that discussion. But that is 
broadly what history and some data would teach us. Okay, so just in case there is anybody watching who's wondering, hang on, four industrial revolutions, just very quickly. No problem. First three, mechanization, moving from hand power to machines. Second, electrification, power running through those machines so they can kind of run themselves. Mm -hmm. Third, computerization, the creation of an entirely new digital world. Okay, and now here we are in artificial intelligence, as you say. Yeah. So it's interesting how your your point about economic and societal dislocation, people can, can recognize that now you put that label on it with a lot of the unrest that's happening around the world. Mm-hmm. You say that in each case before, the end result has been more jobs. Yes. What has been the impact of that on how jobs at a more granular level have changed then? Alison, I mean, look, this is something that we could spend hours on in terms of very difficult to paint with a broad brush in the labor market. We need to really think industry by industry, job function by job function. But broadly, we see increased economic activity. And as GDP increases, as populations increase, you always need more service jobs, more people to produce goods for the increased population. So Until we see those trends start to revert, there's no reason to think that job growth won't go along with it. Jobs have clearly shifted over time. There is no question, right? You know, you can go back 200 years and and I actually don't know this data, so I'm going to make going to throw some numbers here, but they are ballpark accurate. Ninety percent, 95 percent of the population was in agriculture. Now, less than two percent of the workforce is in agriculture in the United States. Globally, it's 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 much higher. Whenever you hear the term repetitive, high volume tasks, know that historically that task always gets automated, always gets automated. Now, just because it gets automated doesn't mean it leads to job losses and the scale of job losses are different. Today in the world, in the labor world, I should say, for those of us that uh, dive into labor statistics and spend our lives doing these things, we break the world down to 704 different job classifications. Recruiter is one within the subset of HR jobs. In those 704 job classifications today, what we try to do is to look at the component tasks of each job. If a job function, one of those 704, has 75 to 100 percent of their component tasks are repetitive, high volume tasks, the same task over and over and over again. Know that over time, that job will almost always there are some exceptions, but almost always go. It will be eliminated. If 50 to 75% of the component tasks are repetitive high volume tasks, history would tell us that in almost all circumstances, about half of jobs go. And then when you get under 50, we see very few, if any, job losses. Under 50% of component tasks of a job function are repetitive high volume tasks, almost no job losses. And so there are certainly some exceptions to this, right? You can think about waiters and waitresses. The tech has existed to displace waiters and waitresses almost entirely for 10 to 15 years. I don't need someone to come over to my table and tell me what the specials are. A digital menu can do that. I don't need someone to make recommendations for me. The restaurant can have a profile on me and what I like. It can pull from my social media and I can tell it what I'm in the mood for and it can make a recommendation for me. It can tell me what wine goes with that. Like it can do all those things and it doesn't, I certainly don't need someone to write that down on a piece of paper and walk it into a kitchen 
the digital menu can API it into the kitchen. So the thing is, is though, even though a very high percentage of the repetitive high volume tasks of the job function of waiter or waitress is very high, here is something where consumer interaction and our desire doesn't lead to job loss because I don't want to sit in front of a screen when I'm at a restaurant. I want to talk to somebody. I want to get their kind of take on things. Mm-hmm. And so even though that text existed, the job doesn't go. So it's something that you need to think about job function by job function and really dive in if you want to have a thoughtful discussion about what's going to happen to that job, not just, oh, this tech exists, therefore that job goes. So what I'm taking from that is that actually human desires like interacting with someone while you're eating, it being a social experience, human desire in the end very often will, if it's aggregated, will trump whatever science can produce in terms of automation. And interestingly, I think in your book, you make a point about how even though the changing nature of jobs and the removal of those highly repetitive task-based jobs has led to jobs needing to change, it hasn't entirely made companies, if in effect, disappear, has it? In fact, far from it. So lots of people were going, oh, well, why would anyone ever employ anyone again? It will just work. Everyone will work in a giant gig economy mm-hmm. and find their work on a sort of daily basis through organizations like WorkMarket. Why has that not happened, Jeff, in your view? You know, the corollary to the previous question and the answer to this question lies in, I think it's chapter six of the book, but one of those, which is something I call the labor equation. And that is the very complex labor resource planning calculus that goes into it. And sadly, I actually did a lot of calculus and tried to come up with an actual equation. It, it didn't work. And I actually, I literally went all beautiful mind on this and I had it all over the uh, my windows <laughs> in at work market. And strangely, the person that taught me calculus actually came to my office and she looked at all the windows. She was looking at it. She looked at it for like 10 minutes. And I was like, you know, waiting for like the big, wow, this is impressive. And she looked at me, she's like, what is this? I was like, oh, well, that's a series of limit functions and calculus. And she's like, no, it isn't. This is gibberish. This is just total gibberish. You remember literally nothing I taught you. That person, by the way, is my mother, (laughs) calculus professor. And she was very embarrassed. She was like, this, you're an idiot. Like, okay, fair enough. Anyway, the point being is that there are a complex series of equations that involve the customer service experience, the competitive environment. The intellectual property involved, the ramp up time, the regulatory environment, touch points, touch points to other parts of the business, you know, and a host of other variables in that equation. And yes, one of them is cost. Let's not pretend it isn't, right? It is a big variable in that equation, but to pretend that it's the only one is incorrect. And so even though the tech has existed to Uberize your workforce, where everyone could get rid of all their employees and do everything on demand. That tech exists. You could use work market to do that. Very few companies, if any, have. And I don't believe many ever will. And so the idea that people could go gig is actually the initial impetus for me writing the book. Because when I founded Work Market, there was this general statement in the world of HR mm-hmm. that by 2020, 50% of the labor force would be on demand. And I remember reading that being like, no, it won't. That's ridiculous. Like, that has no chance of coming true. History would tell us that has no chance of coming true. The data 
would tell us it has no chance of coming true and how companies engage workers would tell us it has no chance of coming true because even if companies could turn all their workers into freelancers, they wouldn't. They just wouldn't want that. The business process doesn't allow it. Regulations don't allow it and a host of other things. And so that was the first prediction that really frustrated me. I was like, it's about 25 to 30% of the labor force now in 2010 when I founded Work Market. And it's going to grow slowly and steadily. And that's what happened. And over the next 20, you know, the next 10 years to 2020, the on demand labor force took about 3% market share. And so, you know, over a 10 year period grew to take 3% more. So it went from 25 to 30% of the labor force to 27 to 32% of the labor force, somewhere around there is, mm-hmm. is where it is now. And we don't have a lot of data, but the, all the data we have points to that. But you know what people are saying now, Allison? By 2030, 50% of the labor force is going to be on demand. I'm like, no, you can't can't just move the goalpost. You have no rationale for doing that. So it's not a simple linear process. Yeah. It is not. Again, what I'm hearing then is that actually, even though those things might technically be possible and even on a purely economic level may even look desirable, Mm -hmm. then human force, power, will steps in in the form of regulation, um, political intervention, legal yeah. intervention. And interestingly, also, I think it'd be fair to say that even if you're looking at just the valuation of a company, mm-hmm. a lot of that depends on the effectiveness of its workforce, doesn't it? And, Absolutely. And if they're gig economy workers, that doesn't get encountered in the valuation so, so much. Does you it? could make the argument, and there are a lot of companies now, there's this great firm called Two Sigma Impact that is a private equity firm that is focused mm-hmm. on if we buy companies and really empower the workers and really make them stakeholders, we believe we're going to have better outcomes. And I think they're 100% right. You have KKR, the one of the world's largest private equity firms, that has a team very focused on employee ownership mm-hmm. and turning a whole different way of approaching the employee base. And so there's a big movement afoot of saying, if we can take our workers and make our workers really owners really part of this team and we can harness the power of that entire workforce we're going to do better and that is a juxtaposition right that is completely different when juxtaposed against the well let's just have a bunch of gig workers and we'll use data and whatever and so it's easy to make that statement i don't know any companies doing the hey let's make everyone a gig worker and screw everybody i just don't know a literally single company doing that and i can point to hundreds of companies going the other way. Thinking now about our specifically recruitment industry audience, what does this mean for them? What do you think they should be aware of looking for the opportunities in, even if it's not quite clear what those are going to be at? So there are a few things that come to mind. The first is the on-demand workforce, the size of it, the growth of it, the importance of it. Now, it is a large part of the labor force. 27 to 32%, somewhere in that in that hood. It is slowly growing and it's been around for a long time. And so have that conversation with your customers to say, well, look, maybe temp workers are a good option here. Maybe freelance workers are a good option here and help your client think through what is the right labor resource planning. Because there are some companies that use absolutely no on-demand workers that should be using more on-demand workers. That's one. Two is to think about which industries are growing 
which job functions are growing and which ones are dying. Think about that repetitive high volume tasks. And if your entire client base is made up of companies that their entire workforces are repetitive high volume tasks, start to think about how you can help them on their automation journey and moving upskilled as they have to get different types of workers because a lot of their frontline workers are going to be replaced by machines and AI systems. Think about the industries that are the job functions that are growing. When I always say the hard ones are growing, the hard tech and the hard human, the hard tech jobs, data science and analytics and computer science and AI and robotics, all those jobs are growing by leaps and bounds with no end in sight to the job growth in that sector. What people don't appreciate is hard human jobs are also growing. Jobs in HR, jobs in sales, jobs in marketing, jobs in customer service, jobs that require empathy, human connection, creativity, design. Those jobs are all growing. Those are the hard human jobs that when you actually sit with the most advanced AI system creators and understand the capabilities of those systems, the idea that they're going to be able to do anything that requires any creativity or design in the medium term, the next 20 years is laughable, right? We've all seen the headlines of, oh, robot art, you know, writes article on current events. Yeah, it was terrible. The robot can write the article. It was a terrible article. And if you read it, you'd be like, what is this? I don't, this didn't tell me anything. And you'd move on. So the idea of them replacing human writers, it's not going to happen in the next 20 years. That is the second point. The third thing to think about is your job function, right? Recruiter is one of the 704 different job functions. The recruiting job function has a very small, very small percent of its component tasks that are repetitive high volume tasks. They're not zero, right? There are repetitive high volume tasks of sifting through resumes. And there are some great technologies out there that are helping recruiters become more efficient and embrace them. Be a first mover here. Go find those companies. Go talk to them. Be a beta customer. Be a pilot. Some are going to be great. Some are going to suck. Are going to be terrible. Going to be a waste of your time. But if you're the one out there thinking about it on the bleeding edge of this, you're going to be at an advantage, both as oh. a company and as a practitioner. Okay, great. So actually, that takes me neatly into my last questionnaire, which is thinking about our audience as individual workers and leaders of businesses they will be wondering well what what can i do personally now to make sure that i am well equipped to survive any sort of transition into bits of my job being automated and what are the skills that will be most useful for a business leader in the future here's what i would say and i would say this to people in any industry there is a term, Allison, that a lot of people are starting to say, oh, God, we're using that term too much. And I would say, oh, my gosh, we're not nearly using it enough. And that is everyone needs to be a lifelong learner. Mm -hmm. And if you're sick of hearing that term, get over it, because the amount of time that it used to take for a skill to abate, for a skill to become non-monetizable, was 30 years. You could go your entire career and you'd never have to be reskilled. You could learn all your stuff from 18 to 24 when general skills attainment occurs, and then okay. you can go. Now it's four to six years is the average amount of time that a skill drops off. And if you're not reskilled, you are not optimally employable. 
Okay. And so the same goes true for the recruiting industry as it does for every industry. If you are not learning about the new stuff, you are very quickly going to either lose out competitively if you're a business owner because other people are able to price more competitively because they've taken tasks out of their job or not be competitively employable as a recruiter. If you come in and they say, hey, we use all these different AI techniques to, and you go, oh, I don't know those. They're going to be like, okay, well, other people do. So stay on top of these things. Go and research them, do betas, do trials, and be a person on the leading edge that is aware of these technologies and embracing them. Okay, so some of the audience I know will be listening thinking, I understand what Jeff means here. He means that, for example, there are new development languages that people are coding in that are coming thick and fast now, whereas you used to be able to get by with, you know, two or three for an entire career. But that doesn't apply to my industry because the fundamentals don't change. So to anyone who's thinking that, can you give them any other examples? Well, yeah, let me just build on what I said before. If you're going in to a job, right? Imagine going into a job now and saying, no, LinkedIn, I don't know how to use that. Like I, or monster right now, I I actually don't know how to post jobs there. You would never say that. Nobody on listening to your podcast, if you're a business owner, if someone came in and they were interviewing for a job at your firm and said that, you'd be like, okay, well get out. (laughs) We can't employ you. You're not employable. This same will be true about pick a new tech. That is an AI-generated resume parser that are AI-generated ATSs and things like that. Those things are happening. And if you are not learning those technologies, you don't have to learn the underlying coding language and being able to build them, but you need to be familiar with them. The way you couldn't go in to a design job right now and say, oh, yeah, no, I don't know how to use uh, PowerPoint. I don't know how to use this thing. Like. You have to learn the tools. The tools of the trade are going to continue to change. So learn the new tools. But it's an interesting example that the, it's the user interfaces get better and easier all the time, don't they? Very true. Jeff, this is absolutely fascinating. And I'm hoping that some of our listeners are seeing that there is a, a real compelling need to look now at, okay, what other value can I bring to my clients? Can we talk about this stuff? But also what value can I bring to my organization. Some of them are going to want to get your book. Where do they go for that, Jeff? Well, I wish I could say, Alison, that uh, you can walk into any bookstore, but I think <laughs> we're unfortunately a couple months away from that. So uh, there's this online retailer, Amazon, that uh, maybe some people have heard of it. Yeah, yeah. I was lucky enough to uh, be one of the select books that they sell on their website. <laughs> so Am- Amazon's the best place. We were very fortunate to be the number one uh, book in all their HR categories when we first launched a couple months ago. And they've been a great channel to sell the book. And I can really recommend it. It is a fascinating read, Pacey. Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today on the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. Lots to think about there. Um, So please do follow up and have a look at Jeff's book online. If you'd like to talk about the recruitment industry specifically and how you can develop your strategy, product services, please get in contact with me, Alison Humphreys. Jeff, thank you and look forward to seeing and hearing you all again. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Recruitment Leadership Podcast. 
If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so that others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. If you have any questions about the topics covered or wish to find out more about recruitment leadership, please email alison at recruitmentleadership.co.uk referencing the podcast. We're also on LinkedIn where you can follow recruitment leadership and connect with Alison Humphreys. Thank you for listening and we hope you join us next time for another episode of the Recruitment Leadership Podcast.